0: This is J.G. Hertzler, General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello, and welcome to Season 6, Episode 9 of Commentary Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. Today we're beginning a new series in which we're going to look at Star Trek The Next Generation writer, producer, showrunner Maurice Hurley and his work as a movie writer. But today we're going to look at uh, what he did on Star Trek. Um, I'm Mike. I'm John. And we're joined by Larry Nemachek. How's it going, Larry?
1: Hey, guys. It's uh, It's great. I, I personally just survived a convention back home in Oklahoma at SoonerCon, and I've been talking all day, and I think I got a little more talk left in me.
0: Excellent. I, you know, I, I, I don't think that you ever lose your ability to talk, I'm guessing. Just from, from, from my experiences with you, I think you have plenty of, of talk left in the tank, uh, right? It's,
1: it's, it's there to come out if the lips in the, in the you know, forming cavity will cooperate. That's, that's the only <laughs> question.
0: Well, thank you very much for for joining us. Uh, You know, we we love having you on the show. I've I've said in the past that you're our Q, and uh, yeah. um,
1: Oh, but my robes aren't near as red as his are, so. (laughs) No, that's, thank you guys, that's very kind, that's very nice. but.
0: But yeah, you know, I mean... We, yeah, we like having you on the show. I, for some reason, lately we've only been having you on when people die. Unfortunately, we need to change that. Yes, we do. But oh, right. Yes, the reason the reason why we're we're covering Maurice Hurley today is because he did pass away recently, um, and he was you know a, a Star Trek showrunner. There aren't that many people who can say that, and he was a significant mm-hmm. uh, voice. He really did help to shape uh, the series, Next Gen, and we, we thought it was only right to to take a closer look at him because he's the guy who really seems to get overlooked on, on Next Generation, it seems.
1: Yeah, that's true. When I, when I did the companion book, you know, I came in the fifth season, and there was so much early... You know, we, we kind of obliquely, politely say there was a merry-go-round the first couple of years, but there was a lot of uh, gnashing and... You know, whatever, and and bit by bit as the years go by, and people either feel like talking about it or whatever, and you know, things you knew at the time, and were not PC enough to be able. I mean, I tried to be honest and at least say there was a conflict or a creative difference or something between blah and blah, you know, X and Y, uh, and at least address it, even if it can only just barely do it in a in a bare bones way at the time, either because that's all I could say or because people wouldn't talk at the time. But since then, you know, we've had the bits of, you know, Leonard Majlis, Jean's attorney interfering in the first season, and then by the end of the first season, him kind of finally being put out to pasture and, and then the, the the all the different producers and writers and Dorothy and Dorothy Fontana and David Gerald, you know, not being happy and leaving and they were the old guard Gene started with and then all this troop of writers that kind of circle around and then finally but yeah, by the end of the first season Maury Hurley had kind of survived the demolition derby and and wound up being the quote unquote showrunner although I still think it was kind of a weak you know the show was not weak but I mean the show was still a little wobbly and it wasn't quite as the way we think of the showrunner being Michael or Jerry or you know Brannon later on in all the different or Ira on DS9 it wasn't quite as gelled a, a thing cuz Gene was still alive and Gene was Gene was alive and he was increasingly not as healthy and involved but he would still weigh in. You know, in third season they were still arguing over mentioning whether uh, Sarek's son that Picard saw the wedding of was Spock or not You know, and that was Gene driving that and Gene driving Ira and some of the third season writers crazy so he would second, first and second season Gene was still a factor but he, Maury Hurley eventually rose to the pack of the rest of the writers <laughs> the head writer I guess so, so yeah and he deserves to be in, in and he made some major contributions right
0: yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, for those people who don't know, he was you know we'll say for for lack of a better term, the showrunner for the first two seasons of Next mm-hmm. Generation. Before leaving, he wrote uh, a total of well ten episodes during those two seasons, including things like uh, Data Lore, um, the Neutral Zone, uh, Q Who was his his big one, I think, and and Shades of Gray and then he he left the series and came back to do two episodes later on one in season 4 which was Galaxy's Child and one in season 5 which was Power Play and uh then he came back one more time to write a treatment for a potential uh Star Trek 7 uh screenplay which uh ended up not being used so okay let's 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 Take it back, and uh, you know, look at 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 his work as a showrunner. Okay, um, so you're saying that there was turmoil and and whatnot, and he eventually rose to the pack. Now, when when did that happen? Because I'm assuming that that Roddenberry, like you were saying, you know, he stuck around for a while and obviously was giving input. But seeing as how cr- he created the show, I'm guessing that at the beginning he was v- very involved in it before before. Stepping back a little bit, is that accurate?
1: Well, right, and but you know, Gene. I mean, even the original series, when he was you know younger and more into the flow of things, and they had a much smaller staff and smaller budgets, and TV wasn't quite as you know. I don't know. Maybe it was a better way to work, or maybe it was just now it's just being bloated, and they were just tougher guys back then. But you know, he when Bob Justman talks about uh, the first few, like the first season, and the show would get behind, and Gene was having to crank out everything, and there was maybe. You know, like John D. F. Black was the original second writer, and then you know they found Gene Kuhn, and Gene Kuhn was like the machine who could crank stuff out and keep him on track. But there were times when Gene, uh, when Gene Roddenberry would do the rewrites, and Bob, like they would shut down production, and Bob would talks about going in and standing on his desk while he typed, you know, and then, and then and then they would hand him the pages, and then he would climb down and go out, and they'd have him sent to mimeo back then, you know, kind of a thing. So the idea of in the 20 years, the way the TV industry worked is, was to have bigger you know, writers and writer rooms. It was a good thing. But, and it wasn't yeah. by, on Gene's shoulders by, you know, at any, by any means, but he was like Mr. Vito. And he would, he wrote some he had a few credited scripts, but it was mainly the story developments and then Mr. Vito, and he would weigh in with his comments kind of in an executive way. Um, mm-hmm. And, if, it, and he, if something was close to his heart, then he would weigh in a, in a big way. But yeah, a lot of it was uh, his attorney, um, Maiselich, getting involved in ways he shouldn't have, and finally the Writers Guild investigated and kind of shut it down. It's like, I'm sorry, do you have a, a writer on your staff named Leonard Maiselich? Well, if he is, he needs to get Guild certification, because we don't have any record of a Leonard Maiselich in the Writers Guild. <laughs> so so, uh, so that that finally went away, and after all that turmoil happened, of all the writers who were left, Leonard, uh, I mean, Maury Hurley did kind of rise to the to the top of the pack. And, and But what I was going to also mention, you're, you're reading off all the cr- things he's credited on. Just remember mm-hmm. that as a show, one of the definitions of a showrunner is they do polished rewrites. Even when somebody else does it, even when there's maybe an uncredited rewrite on somebody's script, like a staffer doing a freelancer's script or whatever, uh, a showrunner may take one more pass on it themselves and and usually not take credit on it. But So his hand was his ideas and notes and even rewrite hand were on almost all the scripts probably from midway through first season onward through his you know at the season and a half at least you just you always have to remember that whoever is, like michael or jerry or ira they're looking at stuff even if their name's not on the
0: on the script the, yeah, for, for the sure. form the
1: formal credits yeah
0: hmm. so Let's go back to 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 Gene's lawyer there for a second, because I, I I guess I wasn't really too familiar with that whole thing. But like, was it just that he was like a really big Star Trek fan who was like, "Here's my chance"? Or I mean, like, what what exactly was he doing in the first place? Why was he like, "Yeah, I'm going to start," you know, giving script notes and whatnot, or or whatever it was that he was doing? Well, what, that's what kind of what
1: that's kind of what boggled. Um... Well, some of this is just now starting to come out or be able to be talked about. He passed away a few years ago, but J- David Gerald has been more open about talking about this. And you know, like listen to the interview he did with um, with John and and uh, Ken on on Mission Log. Um, we did this. He and I, I have part of this in an interview with him we did while we were at FedCon last year, and I haven't done anything with it. But just talking about it's it kind of like. In a in a twisted way of protecting Gene or protecting the show, but just got way more involved than he should have, and yeah, it was like giving notes and telling writers what to do, and they're it's like, well, I'm the voice of Gene, so listen to what I'm doing, and and you know, Gene's want wants me to do this, and and um, anyway, it just it was very confusing, and they had a really disruptive process that they didn't have quite the clean cut writers' room, you know, break sessions and all that. They would do a lot of not so much formal meeting everybody face-to-face, but do a lot of just memos around. And it just wasn't quite as tight a, a system as later on. And so, um, so yeah, but that, that was finally... He was kind of finally put back in his box by midway through the first season, basically, and that's kind of when things kind of settled down. And if you notice things, did, they also brought in a couple more... That was when um, Hannah-Louise Shearer and Tracy Torme came into the staff. Uh, Tracy Torme had pitched the idea of Dixon Hill, and then he wrote it, and then after that they brought him on staff. And I just remember watching the show come off week after week and realizing the end of the first season, it finally started to solidify by the time conspiracy and the, the, by the time of um, the neutral zone. It was like, so exciting! Oh, look, they're having an uplift going into the second season. Okay, it was worth waiting through April 1, and it was worth waiting through coming of age. You know, <laughs> and... And uh, yeah. it's settling down. And, and part of that, and we weren't, at the time, I wasn't so savvy as to think, oh, look, because uh, Maury Hurley was just one of the producers up there. I was looking at who were the newer names, not who was, who's, whose title was increasing. But that was part of it. There was just some, there was just a lot less chaos behind the scenes in the, in the writing process. And that was actually starting to show up on screen in little, you know, in little baby steps.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask that since, I mean, I don't know, John, were you watching Next Gen at this point in time? Oh, yeah,
2: absolutely. Uh, you I, were? From the beginning. Um, and I, I agree with you, Larry. Uh, like, you you felt at the end of the first season like, wow, okay. It, it's just like any other show that uh, is on the air now where, you know, you're kind of like, okay, this is all right for the majority of the first season. And then you get just this burst of creativity at the end where you're like, okay, they've got it together. They figured it all out. Mm-hmm and they know how they're going to work together uh, going forward. Like the I, end I of the knew first if I just hung
1: in there with them, they wouldn't let me down.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. I
1: didn't leave at the third quarter when they were down 14. No, yeah. no, I stayed with
2: it. Yeah. <laughs> great analogy.
0: So, so I mean, I, I can definitely see that, you know, in the second half of season one, it's starting to turn around. I mean, things like, you know, the big goodbye for sure. That's what it's called, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the long mm-hmm. goodbye is the Altman thing. Okay, the big goodbye, and then, yeah, Conspiracy and Neutral Zone, which, you know, was set up, I guess, as the season finale, and I don't know, I mean, it's been a long time since I've watched that episode, but am I right in thinking that it was definitely intended to be setting up the Borg? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. By the, by the time the chaos has ended... <clears throat> having a lack of chaos means you can start making long-range plans, you know, and if you're going to be the one in charge, hey, let's, we got through our first season, let's start to put some uh, stability into this thing and have a, let's have a plan, guys, which is what anybody should do. So yeah, they, and, and, you know, like the Ferengis did not work out as, a, as the big new baddie, and they did decide to go use the Romulans, but if you look at that, it's kind of like, oh, it's almost, when, in one way you could say, okay, well, damn, our, our whole stand-alone-on-your-own-new-stuff-and-don't-reuse-original-series you know dictum, we had to go back on that because the Ferengis didn't work out, and we're, you know, Paper Tigers and all that, so now we're going to have to backtrack on our plan and use like the Romulans now, but if you look at that, they actually use the Romulans as an intriguing stepping stone to whatever the new baddie is going to be, right? Yeah, yeah, for it was, sure. It was so big, it, People were so busy and being thrilled back in the day, going, oh, my God, it's the Romulans. And look, here's their new ship. And here's their new uniforms. And this is so cool. And thank God it feels like Star Trek. Now, you know. But it was just, an, a, a, like you said, it was an opening door to introduce what was going to become the Borg. Although it was a long, it was what we do know of this. I should say right off, when I did the first edition of the Companion, it was five years in. And because of all that turmoil at the beginning, a lot of people were, were kind of burned and didn't want to talk from the first couple seasons. Plus I was having to do the whole damn thing in like three months, which stretched out into six months. So I was doing lucky to get to talk to the people, to Brandon and Michael and Jerry and and Rick, (laughs) who were there cranking out stuff at the time, much less a lot of the early people who came and left, even if they were in a happy state of mind when they left or whatever. So, and it only, it seems like a long time, but it only having it been, two and three and four years, there were some people who were still a little raw. So I didn't talk to Maury Hurley then at the time, I remember there was an interview in Starlog done during his run, not after he left. And that was all I really ever saw, and I used a little bit, a few of the bits and pieces from that, you know, annotated. And then the years went by, and then it, it came up again, like you said, with the generations, options. And I had wanted to circle back to him, but since most of the oomph was about, it was deadline and I had to get on with you know, the, the, the nitty-gritty of generations, there wasn't a whole lot of time at the, in the moment to go over here and explore this. And then you're off and running with all the damn spin-off shows and they're cranking stuff out. And it wasn't until just a few years ago that I tried to reach out to him again, because like you said, he, if nothing else, he created the Borg and needs, needs the kudos for that and, um, and everything that that became. And we corresponded back and forth a little bit, and this was this was in maybe oh seven oh eight. And um, basically, he said, "You know, oh well, nobody wants to that." I, you know, he was a little older, and as I guess we know now, he passed away this year. So this, but this is three, four, five years ago. But he basically said, uh, "Oh, no one cares," you know. Don't go talk to the younger guys. Um, and I'm, I said, "Okay," but I just want to make sure you. I think you deserve you know credit for not only running the show but you know creating the borg is something that will be forever and you deserve your fair share of credit of that and I wanted to let you you know speak to that and he was said something like oh I'm getting too old for this kind of shit so it was kind of the, the mood <laughs> he was in where he was and I just that's one of the things that I re- there's a lot of people that got away that I never even got to approach or that things happen so fast but he's one that I actually did approach and um, and couldn't talk into it so although I um, I'm trying to think I Think I heard where Shatner got him on this famous Canadian documentary that hasn't really been seen in the states yet about the turmoil of the first couple of years. That some of what we're talking about will be in. So I knew that I knew that Rob Burnett and Roger Lay approached him when they were doing the blue the Blu Ray remastered TNG documentaries. You know that so many that I've spoken to a ton of people and Ira told the turmoil of the third season uh, underneath Michael. With the old and the new guard, and that all kind of got exposed and out to air for the light of the day, but uh, they couldn't get Maury to come in even on that. And somehow Shatner must have thrown some money at him or something, but <laughs> convinced him to come talk. And I'm still waiting to see. You know the you know the documentary I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, it's called like was it like Panic on the Bridge yeah, or something? something chaos like that. on the I Bridge or something like that. that?
1: Because that will that will answer millions of unknown questions about 20th century uh first and second season next generation yeah Uh, yeah some of this very topic we're talking about now so but until then um we just we know what we know and um um yeah he deserves all the credit for the for the borg and and trying to ride herd on a crazy crazy shift there that was still you know even beyond him and the writers was still settling into a groove you know
2: all around but uh wasn't he i mean uh, speaking of the the turmoil weren't there a number of people that cited him as the reason they left like they just didn't like working with him
1: i that could be i know somewhere part of it was over mazlisch's interference and then that went away and then some of the writers they had were um were established writers who were you know in their forties and fifties and yeah yeah I mean I would like to make sure of sources and that but that doesn't surprise sure. me yeah
0: yeah yeah it's it's there's just some stuff here on on memory alpha mm-hmm. on on the audio commentary for the pilot of of sliders um, Tracy Torme said that that he he named a character uh, after. Hurley, because um, it was—I guess it was a sort of a bad guy or whatever—and he said that um, he he (laughs) uh, he left after numerous disagreements over Torme's scripts. He said that um, there's a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Herbert J. Wright described him as basically playing drinking buddies with Gene in in some book and stuff. So, I mean, there definitely seemed to be a lot of politics,
1: yeah, office politics or whatever.
0: And I guess, and I guess the other thing about that, you know, which of course is very famous at this point, is after season one, he's the guy who wanted to get rid of Gates McFadden, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Which no one at so, the time
1: really wanted to get into, but that's yeah, basically true.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. Like Rick Berman in that uh, that interview thing that he did for the uh, the Television Academy or whatever it was that mm-hmm. like four hour thing. You know he he talked about it. You know quite. Candidly. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, what and was then, the reaction? And then
1: when Hurley left at the end of the second season, then it was the do we want three doctors in three years? Or do we just want it, are we all clear to have Gates come back? And, you know, because you still had Wesley's character there. Right. You know, you still so had that, Will Wheaton. So, you know, if you wanted to get back to the whole mother son dynamic and, and try to get on with that, and maybe now that you're writing, you know, Wesley better without the, you know, the shut up Wesley era. um which was never Will's fault I always felt bad for him when those idiot fans in the 80s were booing him and so like no go boo the writers or go go boo (laughs) Leonard Maiselich or (laughs) or whatever but you know don't boo the kid my god and then scars him for life (laughs) or whatever you know only to come back and you know conquer the internet but um
0: Um, we, we were talking about that just recently and you know we were talking about where no one has gone before. And, you know, after watching that again a couple of times in the past, like, year or so, like, to me, it seems like they really had set up all the stuff that they did with Wesley in that episode. You know, that episode seems to be, like, the key for that character. And, you know... Well, that it's was like, the
1: arc, right. They were... You read the writer's guide. And they were, you know, in the very early episode, we find out that, you know, he's a, um, a Mozart-like prodigy and has these special abilities. And that becomes... You know, but how do you do that in a human way? And and um, that was, yeah, that was part of it. That was baked into the character to begin with.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, I think people miss that too often, but uh, whatever. Um, so, okay, so... Back so to what life was... with Maury. <laughs> <laughs> so so what was the reaction? I mean, from both of you as, the, as you were watching, because I didn't come into Star Trek until midway through season six of this show. Um, what was the reaction... When all of a sudden season two starts up and there's a new doctor, uh, for whatever reason,
2: I've, honestly, my first reaction the the first time I ever saw Doctor Pulaski was confusion, because I, I I really liked Doctor Crusher, and uh, it, when it, when I saw her on, I was like, so is she just on for like an episode or something? And uh, it, it, you know, it threw I you know I was a I was a kid, and I I just I rolled with it. Um, I never, you know, I never had like a huge problem with her, but I didn't like her as much as Dr. Crusher, you know, like I was just like me eh. and, um, <laughs> you know, it, I just, I, I, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it at the time. When I go back and watch the second season episodes now, yeah, it, it really, the lack of um chemistry i guess shows through but uh you know in, in the moment i wasn't hyper critical of it
0: well, what what about you larry well was... i re-
1: yeah i'm see i'm this is you know before the companion and i'm just a fan in oklahoma watching i i, I like to think a very dialed in fan and i subscribed to Interstat, which was an loc which was a letter of comment a letter of comment zine for you newbies so back in the pre-internet era, you would get a little uh, Terry Meyer for about for nearly twenty years did this letter zine where it was people writing about topics. It wasn't zine like fan fiction. It was a zine that was people wrote letter like it came out once a month, you know, and she typed it on <laughs> on stencils and all that. But and it was you know uh, offset printed, but it was people writing letters back and forth, exchanging ideas, and they would write topics and things. But there were also some news columns in it, and so. Pre-internet, and even with like Entertainment Tonight, you know, putting stuff out, beyond people's deaths and things, it was still a happy-dappy filter, you know, but just to hear what, and to have somebody going through the trade, going through Variety and Hollywood Reporter, you know, when deals were signed or people were cast and all that, it was kind of like you got, it was your filter to the world, but in all of one month, and you would like write a letter in, and then the next month somebody would reply to that, and then you would reply back to them, or you would reply back to eight different people, and they're talking... But I seem to remember between that and maybe Starlog, you know, back when it was, in the beginning, it was way more relevant and not so PR puffery Toward the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do remember knowing that, because then on E.T. watching, because you would like, I'd pay attention to any Star Trek news, since, since Entertainment Tonight was paramount, they always had first dibs on stuff in the video library they pulled from that Don Beck had for years when they would do TV specials and, and, and things, the E.T. the Entertainment Tonight library of interviewing and events and all that was kind of in the in the Star Trek promotional library that he used too. They were just kind of one of the same. And and I remember like they did a little story on the Star Trek rap season one rap party. You know they showed up and and I remember them talking to Gates and and somehow I had this memory of having read that they were going to change Doctors and not you know not saying oh Maury Hurley ran her off. But but saying that they were, that Gates was not going to come back for, you know, whatever the, poli- the politic, nice, tactful language was, Gates was not coming back, but knowing that that was not widely known by the public or most of fandom, because they talked to her and didn't say a thing about it in the story, in the video story on Entertainment Tonight. And I just remember watching going, okay, well, she's just going to smile, and they're going to smile when they ask her questions, and oh, it's been a very fun year, first year, and a gala year, and, you know, this has been... Some kind of glib, you know, generic answer, and I was like, "Wow, they're not going to talk about her leaving the show." I mean, I was aware of it at that time, but that was just for me being very clued in on the couple of channels we had then to be part of. And then they wait. I guess it was kind of like, as a diplomatic thing, it's kind of like, "Let's end the first season and not blow this up with a, you know, big story." They and plus, they had just gone through the, you know, the Denise Crosby is leaving the show stuff, you know, and that was of her own accord. And they'd just gone through that, and there's, there's some kind of a PR angle here. No, the show is not falling apart. No, half the cast is not leaving, yeah. being fired. You know, kind of a stability thing they wanted to project. So I, But I remember watching a little show on A. T. about the Rat Party and interviewing Gates and, and thinking, wow, they didn't mention a thing about her leaving. And I want to say they'd already talked about about Pulaski, and they'd already talked about, or it's not the character name, they'd talked about Diana Mulder and... And at the time thinking, well, okay, she was on the original series, so she's got, you know, Star Trek in her DNA, and she, I knew, knew she liked Jean or Jean and her got along well, so that that makes sense. And boy, it'll sure be a contrast. You know, it's not cookie-cutter, it's a sure contrast. And and um, it's like, oh, well, that's the way the world is. But thinking, yeah, it's too bad they're losing, you know, the, the, the Wesley and Beverly dynamic as mother-son and all that. So, But that's that's where my mind was.
0: Okay. and And... Now, season two in general, I know, I mean, the first two seasons, I guess, are really considered, you know, at least looking at them in hindsight to be problematic, but I'm...
1: And and two less so than one. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, two less so than one. I guess that was going to be my first question, because you you had the writer's strike going on at that point in time, and obviously they were trying to sort of like piece together stuff, and I mean, I, I don't know exactly how... I mean, maybe you can tell us, like, were they, was it that it was impending and they were like, we need to get this done fast before they start striking? Or was it where they actually had to stop working, like, mid-season? Um, but whatever it was, it seems like Hurley, you know, had the, the deck stacked against him uh, going into to season two.
1: Well, in a way, but the strike was actually in spring and summer. So the strike actually affected the end of season one.
0: Okay, so it was more like once yeah. they came back they were like, a, "Oh shit, we need to a, go really yeah. fast."
1: I mean, they had okay. the main scripts written, but like in the later like um What am I trying to think of? The one with uh, uh they'll always have Paris. So the Mannheim effect and the Mannheim lab and the time displacement and all that and mm-hmm. and and data with the multiple data with the pots on sticks and all that stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: It was like a t- i mean, Rob Legato, less his heart, one of the, the like the one real interview I got to do the first time around, on set with somebody for real, live, um, he was talking about the end of that show, because they were on, they were on, he was the visual effects guy stuck with trying to make, it was kind of like, oh, just make something work there. That whole lab thing was him figuring out a cheap, easy way to do a time displacement effect, and just shot shot Brent, like, in three ways, you know, holding that stick with the pot with the, you know, with the red matter. <laughs> In it, hmm. for lack of a better word. But, I mean, he was talking about how they were on strike and he technically couldn't communicate with the writers, but they called the writer and he's like, well, you know, you can't write this scene, but if I was writing this scene, do you have any suggestions? <laughs> 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 I mean, they literally were talking. So, but the strike was spring and summer. They cut four shows out of the second season, which is why it's, you know got four shows left, um, but uh, instead of twenty. 22 instead of 26, which is hysterical because now that's that's a long season now.
2: Yeah, it's yeah. practically three seasons now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, depending. Yeah, if you're in the old school model or the uh, HBO, BBC model, or whatever. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but um, but yeah, the strike we think about that was actually in the spring and summer, so it was it messed up the end of the spring, and then people were paranoid about what what to do with the uh, with the fall, and they were going to. Um, you know looking back at the pilots, you know that's when they went back and found this this child what what are the old uh, bot scripts already for phase 2 that we can just you know you know, mark out mark out kirk right in picard and what makes sense the easiest and that's where you, you came out with the child which actually wasn't too bad for for that but it's amazing because this is the season when they added Guinan and built tin forward you know mm-hmm. coming over which herman Zimmerman actually designed before he left to work on uh, Star Trek V. And that's when he left, and they hired Richard James in full time. But it was actually Herman who finished designing the the, the D interiors with, you know, 10 forward and and um, and that. But having, you know, that was all the new... There was so much hoo-ha going on that break. It was a writer's strike, yeah, but it was like letting Gates go, and um, they were always very... They were hugely keen in the press to say... Uh, she it was just about uh, you know of course they didn't mention the, you know stuff with Hurley it was kind of like well we just didn't think the character was you know we love gates she's a wonderful actress it's not her performance um, just don't like the way it's developing i mean at the time rick was doing the party line and said oh it was jean didn't think it was coming along and i was a big fan of gates and you know but it was jean of course jean was dead by then and not blaming Jane, but just, you know, in that cre- we had creative differences kind of thing. So, you know, and then Pulaski being, oh, she's a McCoy and Krusty and and all that. And this is something that's not well known, but if you actually look in the writer's guide, they gave her three different children by three different men, whether they, no, were, really. whether no. they were formerly husbands. That's something that never got brought up in uh, in dialogue. I think she says somewhere she was a mother or she had a kid or something, but they didn't say she had... Either three different husbands, or at least three kids by three different men. So, that was hmm. you know she was supposed to be kind of uh, she'd been around the turn or two. So she was kind of Picard's equal as far as uh, not as a love interest or you know like the sexual chemistry that Gates would have or that Crusher would have had, but uh, that she she could stand toe to toe with him. Which if you think about the early shows, they tried to bring that out
0: a little bit. Yeah. Uh, what was the reaction to the Borg when it came out? I mean, was there any sort of lead-up Where were in, in the press? Was there this thing where it's like, hey, there's a big thing coming up, you know, you better watch out for the Borg, they're coming to get you? Or or did it just sort of drop and everyone was like, oh my God, that's the most amazing thing ever? Or did people not care? I mean, what was the climate like leading up to that and then the, the reaction to it once it happened?
2: My memory, I, again, I'm not as plugged in as you were um i was just a a, you know a a young fan out in the middle of nowhere um and i remember
1: well hey i was just i was just a fan who had been around the bend a couple of times listening as close as i could to what was being given out so i was still in oklahoma and still you know no big deal at all so that's why i'm curious to hear what you
2: well uh okay (laughs) in my in my relatively clueless bubble uh, I, cause I just, you know, I, I didn't really pay as close attention back then. Um, I remember seeing the episode for the first time and absolutely loving it. Just thinking, you know, this is fantastic. And I couldn't, you know, I, I wanted to see them again. I mean, like I wanted to see the episode again immediately. I was like, that was so cool. So that, I mean, I can tell you that was my reaction. That was my brother's reaction. And then when I talked to my friends at school, after the episode, that was their reaction too was Did you see that one? And so we all I mean we all loved it. We all wanted more Borg.
0: Well, what about you, Larry?
1: Well yeah, I mean I I the real the show that I really remember thinking, okay, this the you know Nick TNG has really turned the corner and made it and it's going to be something major was was next season, yesterday's Enterprise. I just remember holy crap, they finally equaled what the power that the movies could bring, and I didn't really, I don't remember feeling that way with Q Who, but it was still very cool, and it was still very scary, and the, and the moment when Picard finally says, "When you," it was kind of like the uh, oh shit moment, you know, it's like, it's almost like the end of uh, Khan when, you know, he looks over, when, what is it, David looks over and says, we're not going to make it, are we? Um, or whoever it was says that. It's kind of that, it's that moment, you know, and then Picard's begging Q and, and it gets into that little dynamic. But your audience member going, you know, okay, so you Q and Picard are having this debate, but who the fuck are these guys? <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, holy crap. And, um, and the fact that Guinan was in the mix course the other end of that show was the one that the bit was the one where gynon and q are like doing like cat's claws at each other and you're like <laughs> yeah.
2: we're
1: gonna have like uh you know like uh, zap rays come out of their fingers like it's some stupid comic book hero thing oh i didn't say that did i did i say that okay <laughs> uh, or just like ds9's uh show with the Paul rays or something but um but yeah but the build-up because uh, if you go back and like look at the teasers, it was just, you know, the old guy doing his like, we're a new enemy of the Federation, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like um, today they would do that. But back then it wasn't some big build buildup. It was the middle of a season and like how could, excited could you get about a show in the middle of the season? It wasn't a finale yeah. or a, you know, or a season premiere. But, and they weren't even into the whole thing of the two-parters yet, you know, it started with Best of Both Worlds and, and, or putting stuff in ratings, you know, sweeps months. It was, it was, um, it was just a, uh, ooh, an all-new threat next week on The Next Generation at the time, you know?
0: You know, you know, you, you bring that up, you bring up those promos and, like, I remember seeing them back in the day, but by the time that I had seen them, they changed the voiceover to the standard trailer voiceover guy and not the guy who they had at the beginning of the season, but they're all on the Blu-rays. And, like, I just watched Q Who yesterday, and I always watch it with the promo to start, you know, and you get to see it, and I'm like, this is so great. But you know who that voiceover guy is? He's Ernie Anderson, who is the father of Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Anyway so what were we talking about star trek yeah. whatever okay um okay well, well that's that's interesting but then like once it happened so so there wasn't uh, you're saying that um, but well, what john
1: it, said about the minute you saw the show you wanted i mean because they you the minute you saw the show you wanted to go okay well that's great now who are those guys in the cube you know let's yeah because yeah. it was it was a whole new concept of the faceless name and that was you know the borg weren't you know, we talk about, oh, uh, Hurley should get credit as, a, as the creator of the board. It wasn't this clean-cut, you know, uh, seven-day creation cycle. I mean, they, want, they wanted this relentless... They were looking for a relentless, faceless, not a Romulan, Klingon, Ferengi-type, you know, individual character-driven, different actors playing roles with names, quasi-humanoid. They were wanting this faceless horde approach, and the first first thing they came up with uh they actually were like something kind of like the little bugs in conspiracy they were actually trying to find something like that except they they thought the you know the little at the time now they would do cg and it would be insane but at the time they had little stop-motion rubber guys and it just looked kind of goofy you know when you finally saw the thing run across the the room in conspiracy the little alien parasite guys yeah so but they were talking about something that was like massive and faceless and not humanoid in psychology at all, uh, which is you know, where, they got, where they got up to, although the drones are humanoid. But they were talking about having it be like an insectoid race or something that was just like you know, just like a, like, you know, hives of insects or you know, colonies of the insects coming at you, and they're not about individuality. And so it was kind of a thing of they didn't know how they were going to portray that on their budget at the time. But that's the roots of, all those traits came through to, you know, the Borg, and the facelessness, and the relentlessness, and the, we don't care about politics or resources, we just, cons- you know, aside from just surviving and consuming. And we don't, uh, you know, the hive mind and the connected, you know, that got totally, you know, the, the needs of best of both worlds, and then the drama they exploited for, say, iBorg, you know, with uh, Hugh and then all the stuff with, with where it went with Voyager and you know, Matrix 0 by the time they were done with it all the iterations they could turn that whole hive mind collective consciousness thing inside out but in the beginning it was just all about being an unconventional you know not another political empire coming at us kind of thing but that and even though it went through those iterations um you know to, and the other thing was originally the whole seven minutes into the future, Picard from the toilet bowl vortex—a time what? Uh, not Times Square, Picard Square. No, Times Square. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was supposed to have been, You know, it played out, but at the end of the show, you were going to find out that that whole vortex thing had been caused by these guys who show up in the next show, who are the Borg. But hmm. they had so many, they had so many problems developing the show and the the you know going around and around about what would they look like and be and it finally winding up with the humanoid drones and being the board, and how the hell are we going to afford this in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the season when we didn't set back money for it you know and all that what can we afford to do they had to separate the two shows and just have the drama of you know have the story of one be self-contained and the story of the other one be self-contained but that was originally going to be a two-parter uh, which would have <laughs> been you know two-parter in season 2 but that was originally going to be linked and the Borg were going to be the answer to why that time displacement happened. And you had the two Picards.
0: That's, that's interesting. You know, it's, it's curious because to me, like I never, like as for as long as I've known next gen, there's been the Borg As for as long as I've known Star Trek, there's been the Borg, you know, the first time that I saw that and best of both worlds was part of a viewer's choice marathon, you know? So Mm -hmm. I got all of my Borg all in the span of, you know, a few hours and, you know, it's it's kind of strange to think about, you know, the fact that over a year had passed before they brought these guys back, yeah. you know? Was there, like, a lot of anticipation for them to, to return, or...?
1: Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say, was the minute, it's almost like, be careful what you wish for, Lieutenant. The minute they did this story, everyone loved the Borg so much, it was like, okay, bring them back. And then it was like... Okay, now how the we just made these relentless, <laughs> faceless, all victorious, all powerful, gonna cream our flagship guys, you know, in a second. How the hell do we bring them back? What do we do? How do we beat them again without having, you know, weakening them? How do we, how do we, you know, not lose this? What we've got, and so it took them a year and a half to figure out what to do, you know, how to do that, how to bring them back, and do it in a good way without, you know, betraying the idea of them I mean, how do we not destroy their coolness and and mysteriousness and and um, you know, invincibility but still have our guys
0: win. And and by that point in time Hurley was off the show. So I mean, I guess we can kind of talk about that. I mean, it sounds like N- Next Gen kind of took his took its toll on him and he was not very uh keen to come back for season three would that be accurate to say
1: yeah in fact uh if we're moving along here um like eric stillwell who was uh who had been a pa and then became the um the script uh the script uh a script coordinator i'm sorry there in the right in the old days would have been the script typist or the head script typist or something but um eric and then lolita fajo was there for several years um he uh, kind of got left with uh, at the end of the year. That's why this sh- That's why Shades of Grey exists. We had Shades of Grey because <laughs> he was so eager to get out the door, not not so eager. Eager that out the door he helped hire a replacement who wound up being Michael Wagner for a few weeks. But he and Michael Pillar had been buddies, and he and Michael had talked to him about it, or he talked to Michael about it. But they had just by the time they had their lunch, they had just hired Michael Wagner. And he told him that, and he's like, but, you know, why don't you go ahead and write us, you know, do a script for us. And I love how on one end of the real world spectrum, you have all these, all these junior writers, you know, killing themselves to get their spec scripts written or read. You know, they write spec scripts, they try to get people to read them, they try to get feedback and coverage, and they're trying to get looked at and trying to get an agent so they can get a script in a door and get someone to read it. And on the other end, you have all the guys who have been writing for years and know each other, and they go, you know, and they're having lunch. Yeah, I'm just, I'm I'm running Star Trek now, but um, I'm going to leave. And, uh, you know, we just hired a new guy to to run the show, but why don't you uh, put your hand in, come in and do a story for us. And, uh, you know, it's just that range of, you know, that cavalier, the way one end is scrambling to get in the, into the game and the other end, they're, they're playing the game. But, I mean, that's life. But, yeah, that's what happened. He He did get his successor hired and all that long enough. But, on the other hand, he was like out the door and didn't let the screen door, you know, bang him in the butt on the way out the door, and and that's why Shades of Grey was not even like a full story. It was kind of like, okay, we'll do a clip show, and I can be out of here. We can shoot for part of it was budget a little bit. They only had to shoot three days of real, of real original footage, you know, three of uh, one one day of uh, a crappy log on the Planet Hell set, and two days of of Troy and Pulaski staring at Frakes laying in the in the bed with the sheet and the thing around his head. And that was you know, that was the that was the original shooting for the show. But but Eric talks about, um, and I've got it in the companion talking about how he, he feels like he should have had a half a writing credit on the show because half of what they did was putting those clips together and you know. Of course I think since then he's quit complaining about not having credit for Shades of Grey, but <laughs> But that's that's why Shades of Grey exists, is because Hurley was out the door so fast that he's like, Here, I'll do a clip show and I'll only have to write half a script, and I'm out of here. Bye, guys. You know?
0: Yeah. So so he leaves. It sounds like maybe not on the best of terms. It sounds like he kind of is fed up with, with Star Trek and won't discuss it. You know, I've heard that numerous times. And yet, he still came well, back.
1: I, I think he was fine. To, I don't think he left. It wasn't like bad blood when he left. I think he just went, well, this is going nowhere fast. I'm kind of, it's not my thing. Yeah. You know, uh he was and plus he was doing what Gene wanted. Gene was really wanting to do old-style standalone episodes, not so much like not serialized. But but you know, there was no reset button. I mean, like the he, it was more about the plot and adventure than it was about the characters. And there was very tiny little character movement the first and then when when Michael came in, it was all about the family, you know, the family and the bonding and there started to be long arcs with people. It's almost like anything that moved the characters forward as people was kind of like accidental, or it was like plot-driven. Well, we need this to happen in this show, so, oh, okay, well, all of a sudden now, um, you know, some of that was developing the backgrounds, like you kind of gradually got a little bit of worse background. Oh, he was raised by human parents and, you know, has a a Klingon uh, stepbrother, full-blood brother, well, we didn't know it then, but, you know, he has a half, human stepbrother out there and he was raised by human parents because they were massacred and, by Romulans. And Data was found on this column. Which the backstory for Data in Data Lore is totally different than the one that's in the writer's guide at first. But, I mean, that's okay. That's bound to happen. But but it is. And um, and then a lot of the characters, you know, Geordi never got much of a background for the last couple of, you know, it was all Geordi and his women problem. And other than that, <laughs> there wasn't much to Geordi for the first three or four years. And I still don't think Riker had anything consistent about him until they finally got the thing of why he turned down command three times, and that was Best of Both I always thought Best of Both Worlds was, was as great a sh- Riker show as it was anybody else.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That he kind of yeah, came for sure. age in best.
1: But anyway, but I mean, you know, it's, what I'm saying is the characters didn't, uh, this didn't hit me until years later, really, thinking about it, but the characters, it's, they're all plot-driven. They're plot-driven like the original series was. And Gene was, you know, that was kind of the way they were driving it. But as Gene stepped back more and more, and then especially when Michael came in, he was looking at the characters with some arcs. Even if the plots didn't have long arcs, the characters were getting starting to get arcs. And then by the time Jerry came in and was trying to build up Troy and Crusher and, you know, and, and some of the, and start, like, hey, we've better done anything with, with Geordi here. What's the deal? You know, um... And, we, you know, we were short on Riker and Jordy stories. Good grief. You know, cause like, Data was just a natural magnet for stories. And, of course, Picard did. And and who am I leaving out here? And the women. And, oh, and Worf was a natural magnet for stories. So, you know, that's just kind of the way it went. But I, I really think that he was just kind of his perception of the show. And uh, i was talking about Hurley again. I think he was kind of at his, I don't want to say his wits in, but I think he was kind of burned out. Like, you know, I don't know what, you know, I don't, how much longer can I keep coming up with like great science fiction ideas? We write plots around them. And, you know, he had other writers helping too, but I think that's kind of where he was. I think he was kind of I think he was kind of burned with it. So
0: Yeah. So it's it it really isn't that strange that, especially if he was friends with Pillar, that he came back a couple times mm-hmm. uh in later seasons to to write some episodes. So okay. Well Turn fair play. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. He got him in the door, and yeah
0: yeah so 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 let's talk uh, briefly about uh the the last time that he wrote something for Star Trek, even though it never actually saw the light of day, and that's uh the the secondary um treatment for so Star Trek seven, which would become generations uh there were two treatments commissioned for potential uh-huh. movies, one was the one that we saw, which was written by Ron Moore and and Brandon Braga, and then the other one was a treatment written by Maurice Hurley. Um, And I know that there's not a lot known on that, but we we did dig up a little bit of info. I mean, I remember when this happened, and I I guess what? The criteria was like it had to have uh, Shatner in it, right? It had to have Kirk somehow.
1: Yeah, the whole idea was it was going to be a baton handoff from the old generation to the new generation. I mean, you know. Yeah. or not not in Trek canon needs but in audience cultural perceptual here's what Paramount thinks as a we're, movie we're, franchise we should be doing blah blah you know
0: so were they, were they like freaking out i mean because you were there you know while all this was going on right i mean were they was there sort of like a a kind of like general freak out thing going on a, around the Star Trek offices at that time where they're like we really can't mess this up this is a big deal or was it just kind of like business as usual?
1: Well, there was a, a little bit of that. I think I think um, after, well, so by 94, the show, well, next, okay, remember where they are. It's not the first couple of seasons we've been talking about. It's the seventh damn season of Next Gen, and they got the Emmy nomination for series, which was kind of unheard of. And, you know, Next Generation was had spun off one series and was about to spin off another one. And the Trek franchise was riding high and there was no franchise bigger in TV than Star Trek and the sci-fi boom was on and so there was some of that there was a lot of clout and yeah there was the well that's cool for TV guys but can you translate to big screen and and Rick was being very confident about how he carried on and he pulled a lot of people a lot of TV people almost all of the staff and all their various jobs were coming along for the ride on the movie. He wanted to give everybody a movie chance, you know, give everybody a chance at an Oscar nomination instead of just an Emmy kind of a thing. And some, you know, Dennis McCarthy did the theme, did all the music, scored the show, and you know, up and down the line, you know, Mike Westmore had an Oscar, had an Oscar for uh, Mask, so um, not not just making one, but for the movie called Mask. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people had had a lot of people had worked in features, so it wasn't a big stretch, but. There was a little bit... I think the bed hedging was in the fact that I think he probably deep down, they had just written the finale, but even be, you know before they wound up doing the finale, Ron and Brannon, Ron Moore and Brannon Braga, um, Ron Moore and Brannon Braga, um, I think he thought they were the hot, juicy, young, great writers who could do the script. He may have had to convince Paramount that it was worth trusting this, you know, multi-million dollar franchise-shifting movie with these young guys, and maybe just as a back whether for his own sanity or just as a safety valve for the studio for the movie side, um, had had let's commission two scripts. It's almost like it's almost like n b c commissioning three scripts from Gene after the cage, you know, and then they picked one. It's like, well, we like the cage, but we had the problem, so let's do these three, and then Gene wrote one of them. You know, and they didn't pick Gene's script for the second pilot, you know, kind of a thing. So I, it's a little bit like, like that little game. It's like, let's do two options, and then we can pick the one we really want to go along. But, or you can pick the one you like best, but I know which one it's really going to be. But we'll do the other one for show and, and all that. I, I mean, I really kind of think that's where some of that came from, and it may have been like reassurance. Instead of just saying, hi, I'm having these two 28-year-old guys do the next movie script, which is unheard of, especially... These days, but it was you know the nineties were still a little saner, and um,
2: <laughs> and they weren't quite
1: so used to having you know twenty somethings do these uh, tent pole franchise movies. But anyway, I, I think that's what it was. And what's great is at the time I was doing the book. Yeah, by this time I was involved and immersed and, and racing around on deadline, and I'd done the first edition, so this was the red book. But it was still an insane deadline, trying to cram the movie in, into the the two seasons we did, but also the movie and Um, the fact that, you know, and and Rick was, you know, always kind of closed mouthed about things. And even though I had the book and the contract and it was official and licensed, I never saw any documentation, even like a draft, like a memo or something on, on Hurley's, um, version of the script. I hear people talk about it and, and what we were, we were talking about that uh, other side of the room there early on. We can talk about it some more, but they, you know, the, the given, the marching orders were, the whole point was to have Kirk and and Picard interacting, and to see the two, you know, the big Captain Baton handoff, and the generational handoff, if even maybe the crew to crew in some way. And there was the goofy idea, floating around. The studio wanted the two ships in a battle with each other, which was you know made no sense. It was stupid, and, ta- and <laughs> talked them off that. But uh, yeah, so Hurley's we know now Hurley's idea was uh, Picard consulting Kirk. Um, on the galactic crisis with interphasic space. And it's basically getting back to the Tholians and, and having that be a crisis. And, but it's, it's uh, you know, Kirk is a holodeck recreation. So it's, it's a Leah Brahms too kind of situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't seem like it would work as well. I mean, I, I, I love generations a lot more than most people. Uh, but, you know, even, even, even if I, I'm taking in, you know, some sort of like personal bias with that, it still seems like this idea may not have been the most solid choice in the world. You know, so I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I mean, I, I guess that pretty much covers you know Hurley's Hurley's career on Trek. Um, is there anything that we're missing? Anything that 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 we should we should add? You know, before wrapping this up.
1: Well, I or was, I was going back through my notes here real quickly. His he actually came to the staff when the naked now started to shoot.
0: Okay. All right. So that's like what, second episode, right? Yeah. Second or third yeah. episode. Yeah. yeah. So so that's pretty early on then. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Wow.
0: And he'd been on uh he'd been on
1: um uh Miami Vice as well as uh what, the equalizer. Yeah. He'd been at Universal. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah pretty straight ahead action adventure you know drama mystery standard uh interesting the equalizer was always kind of like a crowd favorite that didn't have huge numbers but it was you know those those um those fan awards that came out in the 80s to save Cagney yeah. and Lacey and then they uh <laughs> the pre internet way of, of the fans getting <laughs> having some clout and power was you know start your own uh start your own awards and, re- <laughs> and reward what you like regardless of uh politics or or numbers and uh, so he you know he'd been involved with some some really good kind of hard edged but good character shows so uh, you know good on him
0: yeah well thank you very much for for joining us and and uh, telling us a little bit about what Hurley was was doing Um, I would say we really appreciate it but apparently I always say that and I just got called out on it so I don't I don't (laughs) appreciate it at all by like so, some of the, uh, some of the
1: listeners, or
0: uh, <laughs> uh, a, a, a another guest, you know. But whatever, it's oh, it is what okay. it is. Okay. <laughs> you know what? So I'll say it.
2: I really appreciate you being on the show. <laughs> I like so, I like you. So
1: yeah, it was so so Larry. <laughs> Come back and don't we don't
0: care. It's just, yeah. no. <laughs> so so where can people find you these days, or what what have you got coming up?
1: People can find me astounded that we had this much to talk about Maury um, <laughs> Hurley. I was skeptical at first, I have to say, guys, but I guess we found a way to round it out. And without hopefully blabbing on, you know, at length too much. But, uh, yeah. No, well, LarryNimichek.com is where people can always find me. Um, this is an interesting year. Uh, Enterprise and Space is hopefully the nonprofit uh, that I'm now the national spokesman for and doing outreach at conventions. Um well, here in a couple months, may have a huge announcement about uh, a funding commitment. And uh, although we're still crowdfunding for this nonprofit flight to put 100 plus student experiments from around the world on an orbiter, which would be the first real spacecraft named Enterprise in space, um, that's exciting. So I hope everybody goes to enterpriseinspace.org. Uh, but the rest of all the projects, um, you know, the, uh, next year's the 50th anniversary of, of Trek and Geek Nation tours. We're doing our LA to Vegas tour uh, next year. And we're at, with some major tweaks before the Vegas convention that week. And before that, a few days, we're adding on a San Francisco, a new, an all new um, bit bopping around San Francisco with, with, you know, real landmarks and fictional landmarks that are all, all Trek related. So, you know, come over to Keep Nation Tours and look at the uh, L.A. to Vegas site. Um, And then closer to my Bailey in the here and now, uh, working on my voiceover career, but uh, Trekland on speaker volume four is going to be out at Vegas and then online immediately to order. And, of course, you know, fearless leader Chris uh, basically art directs and remasters, produces that with me for me and I appreciate that Um, so number four is going to be about the anniversary Uh, it's going to be about Voyager's pilot caretaker and I'm just getting it lined up and hopefully have some more little obscure bits uh, aside from like Jerry Taylor talking and and Rick Colby the late great Rick Colby the director talking about you know firsthand experiences and stories and he's good he's on one of the other CDs um, talking about all good things um, hoping to have some things from like Alan Sims, a prop master, and um, some of the other uh, Dan Curry, visual effects, some of the other bits and pieces about getting Voyager off the ground and launching, and you know some of the great things and some of the not so great, you know, <coughs> Kazon <K's> <laughs> um, <laughs> bits of the opening there. Um, so that's coming up, and then I have a uh, I'm probably forgetting oh the trekland trunk for my artifacts getting out if anybody wants to come over and look. Um, uh, and we do the live auctions on Sunday on, on Facebooks. I say they're like little three hour mini things, but if you go to Trekland Trunk on Facebook, it's just a it's basically a glorified list. So I don't feel too oily and smarmy like a used car guy. Uh <laughs> you just come there if you're interested and if not, you know, don't worry about it. Um but I'm I'm a this summer with all the big cons coming up, uh sooner con here, but uh Comic Con San Diego I have a panel Thursday night and two days uh two Part day signing and then we're going to do a Dr. Trek show that's a fundraiser for the Con of Wrath and we're trying to wrap up the Con of Wrath filming this year we just did five people here in Dallas and Oklahoma City this week and um, you know we've got Nichelle in March and I must say that after this year we've had of losing people in Trekland that uh, when I heard about Nichelle's uh, stroke my heart kind of leaped up I guess I go please not another one But, um, but thankfully not but we did have her in the can from March and we're just going to round out the year getting a few more people, hopefully, get over to the East Coast and get a few people, some survivors from over that way. Um, but we're trying to get that out for next year. Um, and uh, that's about it. I have a whole new thing that I'm about. I'm, I'm sometime in the next month going to actually announce it. So I just hope everybody come over and get on my news list at larnimachek.com and Trekland on Facebook. And at Larry Nimichek on Twitter, because in the next month I'm going to be announcing something that's a whole new thing in Trek fandom, never been done before, um, and it's a very personal bit that I can share more with fandom. And um, no, it's not a podcast per se, and it's not a not a cola, not a root beer, but um, <laughs> but something totally different. And I don't, I'm, I'm still settling down even on the name of it, so uh, you'll just have to stay tuned. <laughs>
0: So I've either teased wait. the
1: hell out of you or I've totally put you to sleep by now. So. No,
0: no I can't wait. Uh, or maybe yeah. both. I know, no, anxiously that's... awaiting to hear what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank thank you very much for joining us. I don't appreciate it. Um, but you are more than welcome back anytime and i know that our lis- our, our listeners certainly appreciate it um, because whenever you come on all of a sudden people start listening to our show so oh guys uh, <laughs> so yeah yeah anytime like even if someone doesn't die you're more than welcome oh, to come on the show yes the door is so, always open guys come on it's been a rough I know year. <laughs> it's crazy this has been the worst year ever for star trek by far so you know all right. Well, uh, thanks again for joining us, and uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks, guys. Thanks much.
0: Well, that was fun having uh, Larry on. It's, it's always good to to talk to him. He's got an insane amount of knowledge about next. Yeah, John. yeah, he is. Uh, wh- wow,
2: <laughs> talking <laughs> to him is always fun.
0: And you know he, he was telling us uh, off mic on the other side of the track or whatever you want to call it <laughs> that you know he he was in today he he was in at uh, Oklahoma City I guess at at SoonerCon which is a convention um down there and that's where he's from and everything so I think I guess he goes there every year but he met a guy he put a, a picture of him up on his uh uh Twitter feed uh, his name is 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 Wafford I yes. guess And this guy told him that he has the entire catalog of Trek FM shows archived on his computer. That's, That's yeah, flattering and uh, wow. I mean, I want to know if he's listened to them all, because, I mean, I haven't even... Listen to, well, I mean, I I haven't even listened to all the shows that I've been on. Let's put it that way. So, yeah, thank you, Wofford. Yeah, Um,
2: that's, you know, it it really is, though, if you think about it, really flattering that somebody uh, digs the network that much. uh, Also, we'll we'll know where to
0: come when we lose all of our files.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when, when, when Trek FM gets attacked by a Borg virus. (laughs)
0: Uh, We know where we can go to reclaim everything. Yes. So thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate it. Yeah, very much. Well, it's been fun talking about Maurice Hurley today, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network.
2: Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit.
0: You know, watching it live to three months after the series ends to watch the Mirror Universe episodes. You're like, you're but, like, uh, whoa, man! I heard season three got dark, but this is crazy. <laughs> it got darkly. <laughs> oh, Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to
2: port. <laughs> I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard <laughs> phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb.
0: And so they cannot. Impart to him the knowledge that he needs in order to raise his son. And Worf doesn't want to raise a human son. Like you said earlier, he didn't get the son that he wanted. He wants to raise a Klingon son.
2: The Ready Room. We knew that Spock was popular and we knew that dad had some fans, but we were
1: not prepared for what we saw happening in the social media, in the print media. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the New York Times reported that they got more hits on dad's obituary than any other
2: person, personality, in the history of the paper. To the journey! (laughs) You're not a member of our race or a member of our culture, so we're gonna say no. Hmm, that's kind of boring, and yet I don't know what else to do. Oh, screw you! (laughs) Sorry, buddy. Warp 5.
0: I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school, and I remember revisiting it now in full, and I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with
2: silik and the Suluban, which we'll talk about later in the show.
0: Commentary, Trek stars. It's all of these top-notch filmmakers, like people like Walter Murch, who literally wrote the book on editing. He, Like, those guys all teaming up to make a big action kids movie, I think is really cool. The 602 Club.
2: I think he's very much recreating that THX feel and... You may di- you may disagree with it. You may not think it's you know it's great, but it's on
0: purpose. He-, he wants that world to be that way. Let me just say, conceptually, I agree with that. In terms of execution, that's where I think he failed.
2: Literary treks.
0: It's amazing to me as I reread these stories, how much of it
1: I just kind of think of as Deep Space Nine these days, even though it wasn't part of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> you know the the actual series.
2: Axonar the official podcast It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic the aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment it had its time and there's a certain amount of charm still to that but it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back in my opinion Women at Warp So she definitely knows cats. I say that right off the bat. She knows cats and bones. Yes, definitely. Of course, bones would get annoyed with all the cat fur. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
0: So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. Star Trek beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the shows as they search in iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download um, the MP3s directly from our website or grab the RSS link as well. Oh, I forgot to mention. I'm sorry. I have to bring this up. True Detective season 2 started up. I know I've brought it up the past 2 weeks. Uh, finally watch season finally watched the first episode. It is amazing i know there are people who are like this is garbage it's not nearly as good as season one yes i'm sorry it's not nearly as good as the best season in television history but it's still awesome and the thing that makes it super awesome in addition to other things is the direction you want to know how cool this guy is this justin lynn dude who's making this new star trek movie right now this show which is on network television In an aspect ratio of 16 by 9, just like your network television, he's shooting it in anamorphic widescreen and then cropping it just so that he can get that anamorphic look like all of the the Star Trek movies aside from number six have. Wow. That's that's how cool and how good this dude is. He is on point. You know, if you look at this... The Fast and the Furious movies and his episodes of Community, you can see someone (laughs) who can... I mean, his episodes of Community are really freaking good. He did the paintball episode from season one, right? Okay. Yeah. He can do anything i am convinced and i am convinced that he this star trek beyond is not going to be fast and the furious in space it's going to be star trek the way it should be because this guy knows how to do whatever is appropriate for the material so i just wanted to just say that and say go watch true detective season two because it's the bomb anyway
2: thank you for building us all up for star trek beyond Because now, now I'm really excited. And if it's not fantastic, it's going to be you that I blame, Mike.
0: Uh, That's how it works. I'm more than willing to accept the blame, you know. (laughs) Anyway... Another way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's patreo ncom slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. If you want to contact us, you can fill out the form on trek.fm slash contact, or you can leave us a voicemail. Just look in the sidebar of the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. You can find the network on Twitter at trek.fm. Or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, where we also have the Babel Conference. Just type in the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click the discussion tab on the menu bar. John, where can people find you on the Internet?
2: Oh, look for me on Twitter at KesselJunkie. And otherwise, you can find me on a weekly podcast called Words with Nerds that I co-host with my friend Craig. Uh, and it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, and you can find me right here on Track FM doing Standard Orbit with Drew, or you can find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com, where I do Commentary Track Stars off-topic. I've recorded three episodes in two days, and I'm recording another one tomorrow, and I'm going to get all caught up. Good grief, man. (laughs) You're a machine. I just need to edit them. That's the hard part. Yeah. Um, and then you can also find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, or you can find all of us on Twitter at ComTrackStars or email us at ComTrackStars at com. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek stars, and all our other shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. John, what book do you have for us this week?
2: Ah, well, this week, uh, since we did talk quite a bit about uh, Q, uh, we have Q Squared by Peter David, Narrated by the great John DeLancey, uh, in all of his travels, Captain Picard has never encountered an opponent more powerful than Q, a being from another continuum that Picard encountered on his very first mission as captain of the Starship Enterprise. In the years since, Q has returned to harass Picard and his crew. Sometimes dangerous, sometimes merely obnoxious, Q has always been mysterious and seemingly all-powerful. But now, Trelane, another member of the Continuum who Captain Kirk and his crew first encountered over 100 years ago, has tapped into an awesome power source that makes him more powerful than the combined might of the entire Continuum.
0: Yeah, I've read this book. I read it when it came out. Um, It's awesome. I really like it. Peter David is obviously awesome. Yeah. His comic books are cool. His, His novels are cool. And this book is really good. I highly recommend it. It's got some crazy, weird time travel stuff. He does, like, tracks, like track one, track two, track cool. three, because there's all these alternate timelines. And then it gets to the end, and he's like, derailment. You know, I mean, it's That's like awesome. crazy. Yeah. Uh, so definitely check it out, especially if you're nerdy and into, like, alternate realities and alternate timelines and simultaneously. Uh, it's very similar to All Good Things, actually, which is kind of crazy. Um, oh, cool. but But check it out. Um, and you can get it for free since you listen to Trek FM. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audio book of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting commentary, Trek stars, and the network. All right, well, that's it for Maurice Hurley's work on Star Trek. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the first of two movies that he wrote this one being The Proposal, which you can find on Netflix so go, go over to Netflix watch The Proposal get all ready for next week you can hear us talk about it
2: yeah, take your notes, be
0: prepared yes until then um, keep on trekking oh, <laughs> no, 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 no we really appreciate you listening, how about that okay <laughs>